0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a tumultuous year for the arts. We'll check in with the new owners of iconic Denver bookstore Tattered Cover. Then, a Grand Junction painter tells us how she's navigated a changing art market and stayed creative despite social isolation. Plus, Ratatouille the musical. It started a as a TikTok meme, now vegetables. it's a New and York Theatre Company production, but featuring, featuring songs by a Fort Collins team.
1: Well, mommy never had to face a dinner hush when the orders came flooding in, and every dish is different, and none as simple, and all of the different cooking times, but must arrive on the customer's table at exactly the same time. Hot and perfect.
0: Also, there's no stock show this January. So how long should the Christmas lights stay up?
2: We are getting questions about it, and the tradition takes place even when the stock show doesn't.
0: We'll tell you when the lights should come down and explore the history of this holiday tradition in Colorado. Every street has stories, and every year, Denverite tells a few during our street week. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and this week we're pounding the pavement of Denver's Bruce Randolph Avenue.
3: Look for profiles of folks we meet
0: there, some standout restaurants in the neighborhood, and a dive into the life of the man who gave Bruce Randolph Avenue its name and its heart. Check out Street Week and sign up for our daily newsletter at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Iconic Denver bookstore, Tattered Cover, is under new ownership. Its last owners came under fire during the summer's Black Lives Matter protest when it released a statement that said the business would not engage in public debate and has historically held this stance. The statement sparked outrage from community members who felt that the neutrality was a form of injustice, and this prompted the owners to issue an apology. Well, Tattered Cover has since been sold, and now it's the largest Black-owned bookstore in the country. The new owners are Kwame Spearman and David Back. Guys, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much. It's, uh, It's an honor to be here. We're longtime CPR listeners.
0: I'm so glad. Kwame, let's start with the controversy from the summer that I just described. How did you feel about the former owner's initial statement, and how would you have handled the situation differently?
5: Sure. You know, I think the first thing to say is I, I've really enjoyed getting to know Lynn and Kristen. They are absolutely fantastic people. And I think once you get to know them, you read the statement statement a bit differently. Um, but you know, like most of the community, I I was I was upset. You know, I think one of the one of the biggest roles of an independent bookstore in any community is to be a, a space where everyone feels welcome, where everyone wants to be able to go into and, and feel a part of the community. And to live up to that, you've got to want to be on the right side of history. And so I, I think the statement was was not necessarily, the, the it didn't come off the way it was intended. Um, I, I think Lynn and Kristen are fantastic people, and, and I really look forward I really look to moving forward and, you know, really cherishing the notion that this is now the largest black owned bookstore
0: in the United States. And Lynn and Kristen are the former owners. David, who the heck buys a bookstore in the middle of a pandemic?
4: So uh, the story actually goes back uh, more than 20 years. Uh, Kwame and I are friends from high school. Uh, We actually, we went to rival high schools. I went to GW and Kwame went to East. And uh, we met through high school speech and debate and have stayed friends ever since. Uh, We're both really passionate about Colorado, and we're both very interested in business and entrepreneurship. And so we've been talking about various ideas, well, ever since high school. And uh, my first job actually was as a cashier at Tattered Cover in Cherry Creek when I was 15. So Tattered Cover is a, you know, it's a place that really has a, a special place in my heart and Kwame's heart and the heart of a lot of people in Denver. Um, I, I, moved back to Denver after 18 years away in December to help my parents, uh, who are old and need, need help. And, um, I was immersing myself in the Denver community and of course COVID hit and small businesses were just getting, you know, is clearly a catastrophic impact on small businesses. And I saw a front page uh, piece in the Denver post saying that Tattered Cover had furloughed 80% of its staff, still paying Still paying their health benefits, however. And I thought, well, Tattered Cover's the small business in Colorado that I I care the most about. So I reached out to the owners and asked, how can I help? And the conversation developed from there. And they said we eventually they said we really don't have the resources to to invest in Tattered Cover to make it the, the best bookstore of the next 50 years. Um, and so once it once they said we we we're looking to sell now. Kwame was just about the first person I called and said, you know, this is an amazing opportunity with a, an iconic uh, Denver landmark, and we can make a big difference in the community.
0: You've each mentioned community a few times. I know that one of your priorities is to make Tattered a place for all people, but you're also trying to bring Tattered to people. What does that look like?
5: I think it starts off with listening you know we need to take all of the magic that is inside of the bookstore that feeling you know when you walk in searching for the perfect book and you, and you find the assistance to get it we need to bring that outside of tattered cover and there are a few ways to do it you know obviously digital and e-commerce are not going anywhere and we need to think about the next version of what bookstores are going to look like they're they're going to have a high e-commerce component but the other element is is actually something that that we all desperately are going to need after the pandemic is over, which is just interaction. And so one of the things David and I are looking forward to do is going into all communities in Colorado, speaking to our, our, our authors, our artists, you know, underrepresented communities, and really understanding how we can be helpful and beneficial and allowing that to really create our vision moving forward.
0: Do you see tattered cover as a potential resource for underserved communities when it comes to literacy?
5: You know, as a black male and you know a mom who was in education for thirty years, I can tell you that the number one issue of oppression and really sort of keeping people out of the opportunities is through a lack of literacy. and And so it's something I feel so strongly about. Everyone loves to read. The, the The question is just what type of books, what type of magazines, what type of news, but everyone in their core can appreciate and love reading. And so, one of the things that that we look forward to doing is being a source of getting our literature into communities, especially with everything that's going on right now with remote learning. There's never been a time in which an independent bookstore like the Tattered Cover is needed to help continue to advocate for literacy potentially among Denver's youth.
0: And we've already touched on it. Tattered Cover is now the largest Black-owned bookstore in the country. Kwame, I wonder if you could reflect on that.
5: It's it's astonishing. Um, you know, what I hope to do is, I think, what every person before me has done is just provide another example of the notion that anything is achievable. And if you put your mind to it, if you Put hard work into it, you can accomplish any and all goal. And so, my hope is, you know, not just with, with with other Black Americans, but with everyone. You know, what David and I want to do with this is, we want to create a small business that is intertwined with the community that is also profitable. And if we can be successful with that, there are going to be five more small businesses that look to do the same thing. And if those five are successful, there are going to be another fifteen or twenty. And I just look forward to sort of what our community can be like if that's if that's our path forward.
0: And David, you're starting with the tattered cover, at least initially during the pandemic. What does that first foray into ownership look like?
4: Well, the top priority right now is safety, uh, keeping our staff and customers safe um, during the during the holiday shopping season. Um, that's the top priority right now. Uh, Once once the holidays are over, we we plan to invest uh, quite heavily into, well, first of all, getting Tattered Cover through this difficult time, but then also investing into into improving and growing it. Um, Next year is actually Tattered Cover's 50th anniversary, which is something we're really excited about. It's a great opportunity both to look back at the traditions and history of what has made Tattered Cover the best bookstore in the Western hemisphere. and, and also to look forward and say, well, what does the bookstore of, of 2060 and 2070, what's that bookstore going to need?
0: What sort of ideas are you kicking around?
4: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So there's a, there's a lot of ideas. We want, particularly, you know, after the pandemic, as Palmi said, we want Tattered Cover really to be a community hub. We want I mean, it's, of course, has amazing author events and amazing writing workshops and things like that. We, we want to turbo drive that. and We want to have more social activities. Um, as Kwame said, we want to be going out to the community. Uh, we're opening, we, we have two new locations coming up, um, one in uh, Westminster, and then our, our historic Lodo location is moving to McGregor Square right across the street from Coors Field. And, uh, I, and then we'll keep going from there.
0: I think this Tattered Cover storyline is kind of rare right now. You know, we're more often hearing about local businesses that are closing permanently. There aren't passionate buyers that swoop in for all of them. So I wonder if you two feel a responsibility to help other local businesses get through this, maybe through partnerships with Tattered.
5: You know, just to echo on some of the things that David was talking about, it ties into the question you know when david and i were growing up i sort of felt like denver was one of those cities that if you lived here you knew how amazing it was but when you went outside it was sort of off the radar I think what's changed is Denver is now an international city. Everyone across the world understands the talent and the production that Denver and the state of Colorado are adding. And so we see this as a huge opportunity to make Tattered Cover into a community type organization that showcases all of that. So I was speaking to our employees last week, and we're going to have artists in our stores as everything starts to open up. And so imagine being able to buy, you know, book adjacent art paintings that are produced and curated by Colorado artists. Imagine being able to listen to music once again by Colorado performers and writers all within your local bookstore. There's so much opportunity. And to me, all we have to do is be a channel for the talent in Colorado. To Colorado, to, to Colorado citizens.
0: This is an exciting vision. Okay, before we go, what are you each reading right now that you would recommend to our listeners as well?
4: Um, I, I'm I'm reading something probably. i Connie's probably reading the same thing. I'm reading Barack Obama's uh book.
5: You know, and and in our defense it's like 750 pages, and so (laughs) it takes a little while to get through, but we're going to have a robust reading list in 2021. One of the things that we want Tattered Cover to be able to do is to help curate for potential readers. And so we look to be able to, to post, you know, Tattered Cover reads and staff picks and top 10 novels as we really try to push literacy in our community.
0: Helping people navigate, not just getting the books, but navigate the books store and finding books as well. Well,
5: well I'm we, we
4: oh, go ahead. very to In is that there's everybody will enjoy reading if they're given the right book. And there's, there's a book for everybody and we want to help them find it.
0: I love that. Well, thank you both so much for being here.
5: Thank, thank you. you for having us.
0: Kwame Spearman and David Back are the new owners of Denver bookstore tattered cover. Many artists are used to working alone in the studio that's different than pandemic isolation. Grand Junction painter Diana Fritzler has found new ways to get inspired and market her work. Hi, Diana. Hi, how are you, Avery? Doing well. How are How are you doing?
6: Good, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to. You're known for your bold and colorful paintings purple cows, red buffaloes, and what you call bodacious blooms. But during this pandemic, you found yourself filling canvases with empty bowls and muted gray tones. Was this illustrative of how the pandemic is affecting you as an artist?
6: Uh, absolutely. I started realizing that I was painting with a lot of gray and a lot of dark tones. And when I pondered what was going on, I realized that I was feeling very empty during this time of isolation. And these bowls started to emerge and they became dancing bowls that were much more vibrant, just begging for good things to fill them up. What made the difference for you? I think that it was just taking the time to go into myself and ponder what was happening in my heart and then trying to do something about it. And I did it through my paintings, which bring me great joy. So that was one way that I could work through it.
0: Non-artists might think of painting as the perfect pandemic profession. You create alone in a studio, so social distancing is built in. Do you think that artists that work alone have it somewhat easy compared to other professions?
6: I think that we do in terms that we're kind of used to it. However, we also are used to being around lots of people at shows, at gallery openings, art fairs, all of those things. And I know for myself, I'm desperately missing my collectors and and meeting new people. And I believe others are as well. And
0: that kind of brings in this idea of the marketing. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, it seems like visual artists may suffer from the same angst as live performers who miss the audience interaction and the applause. Do you find yourself pining for that feedback that you'd normally get in gallery openings or those art shows or dealing with collectors?
6: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's um, the silence is deafening. For sure. It's very difficult. Uh, I believe any artist, whether performing or visual, any type of artist has doubts about what they do and often can feel insecure about what they're doing. And the way that we get our feedback and the things that really push us to move forward and explore is the feedback from people. And I definitely miss that. I know others do as well.
0: Do you find yourself finishing paintings and wondering who is going to buy this just because you
6: haven't been able to get that feedback that you normally would? Um, I always feel that way. (laughs) Um, I think most artists, when we finish a painting, and even though we may love it and feel so great about what's gone into it and that it uh, explores what we're trying to communicate, there's always that thought of, is it going to sell? Is, is this anything anybody would be interested in, especially the artists who rely on this for their uh, income?
0: We should say you've been a professional artist in Colorado for 24 years. Galleries across the state and New Mexico display your work. So do Denver Children's Hospital, St. Mary's Hospital and Colorado Mesa University. You're also in demand as an art teacher. Do you think that you are better positioned
6: than some artists to weather this pandemic? Um yes, I feel that I am in some ways because I my background is in marketing and so I've always been intrigued by marketing and have tried to keep up with technology although I don't do all that great of a job sometimes. Um but that has really helped me kind of get a leg up in this pandemic. I think that artists that are really not comfortable with technology or who have not been involved in marketing themselves are perhaps having a more difficult time
0: and you said you're worried for folks for whom this is their full-time gig and who struggle with that marketing aspect do you know that do you know artists who have folded up their easels and given up
6: I know artists who do the, it's called the art fair circuit, who travel the country during the the spring and summer and fall months and go from one art festival to the other to sell their art. And that's pretty much shut down, obviously, this last year. And I do know some of those artists who have just said, I'm done. I, I just can't do this anymore. That breaks my heart.
0: And tell me a little more about the pandemic's financial hit for you and your art community.
6: I think it varies from artist to artist. Um, I'm fortunate in that my art business uh, is not the sole income for our household, where it is for some. I think that um, it's it's been hard-hitting, although I do have to say that, especially in the last few weeks... The community has really rallied and I have, um, my sales have definitely increased. I think that most artists I talked to, they were down, especially initially, because everybody was scared, so scared and uncertain. But I I do believe they're picking up, but it definitely has had a financial hit on all artists that I know.
0: I have to imagine that this would always be a time of year when sales would probably pick up because it's the holidays and people are buying gifts. Are you seeing the demand match what it might other years?
6: You know, actually, just in the last two weeks, I went back and kind of reviewed what happened last year and compared it with what's going on this year. And it is about the same. And this is your full-time
0: profession. So like we're talking about, it is not all painting. A big chunk of your time is on this business side of things. You've mentored artists who are learning those skills. Talk about the challenges that folks are facing when they're adapting to marketing in the pandemic.
6: I think that um, anybody, whether they're an artist or another entrepreneur, find difficulty in learning um, all of the ins and outs of technology. Because that's how we're having to communicate with people right now. And that can be really intimidating, really scary and confusing. So I think there's a lot to learn and it can be quite frankly overwhelming so i think that that's probably the biggest challenge and then also knowing how to communicate um, how to tell our stories what's appropriate to share all of those kinds of things are are difficult
0: what is your best idea for getting art into the hands of the public during the pandemic
6: I believe that this is a really great time for artists to sit down and understand more about why they create and what they're trying to say and then craft communication that shares that with other people. I think that the more that people know about why you're creating and what you're trying to say, the more likely they are to become involved in your art. So much of this, it's about
0: communication and the stories that you're telling. We're all living through this crazy story with the pandemic. Tell me a little bit more about how that's shaping your work, but also just how you're staying inspired as it drags on.
6: You know, I think the thing that inspires me the most are my students Um, teaching workshops via Zoom um, I mentor several people around the country, and talking with them gets me really inspired. And I find that I learn just as much from them. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. I also find inspiration from other artwork. Um, I've been actually accessing online gallery openings and talks and those kinds of things. And that's been very inspirational for me as well.
0: How has it been to teach over Zoom?
6: Um, (laughs) initially it was pretty scary, kind of a challenge. Uh, I feel very comfortable with it now and have learned to really be able to, um, feel close to my students as we move forward. So I, I like it, although I would rather do it in person, of course. You said that you have students from around the country.
0: Do you see the art scenes that they're participating in hit the same way Colorado is? Absolutely.
6: Absolutely. And yep. What stories are you some, hearing? Yeah, some that are even worse. I know New Mexico um, is having a really difficult time, and the galleries have had to shut down again. And so it varies from state to state, but it's pretty much country ride. Another question about teaching over Zoom. I mean, I think
0: of the pausing and the low resolution. How do you get close enough to students' work to really see what they're doing?
6: That's a great question. Um, I actually make them hold it up in front of their computer uh, to discuss it. And then once they do that, um, I can share their screen with the other students so that we can all learn together and I can zoom in on it. So (laughs) it is a little awkward, but it works. What a crazy year. Well, Diana, thank you so much for
0: joining us today.
6: Thank you so much, Avery. I sure appreciate it. And I wish everybody out there well.
0: Diana Fritzler of Grand Junction is one of hundreds of professional artists around Colorado trying to make a go of it during the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, Your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community, each and every day.
0: If you're on TikTok, you might have heard of Ratatouille the Musical. If you haven't, It's exactly what it sounds like. Users on the social media app have spent their pandemic free time to create songs, dance routines, and set design for a hypothetical musical based on the 2007 Pixar movie about a mouse who dreams of becoming a chef. Here's one of the most popular songs.
1: What are you doing? I'm cutting vegetables. I'm cutting vegetables. No, you waste energy and time. Okay. Do you think cooking is a cute job like mommy in the kitchen? Well, mommy never had to face a dinner hush when the orders came flooding in and every dish is different and none as simple and all of the different cooking times but must arrive on the customer's table at exactly the same time hot and perfect every second counts and you cannot be mommy! Do you understand? Uh, not particularly? You're such a stupid boy. Just listen to me. Okay. You can't just flail your arms around. Right, got it. So, honey, time to focus. Okay. Stop and listen.
0: We'll do. A- That's 17-year-old Blake Rouse from Fort Collins singing. He has 215,000 followers and millions of views on his videos for the crowdsourced musical. He joins us, Blake. Welcome.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: Doing well. First, just give us the quick rundown. What is TikTok, and how did you get started posting videos on there?
1: So TikTok is a social media app, um, and it's a lot like Vine. I don't know if anyone remembers Vine. It was <laughs> the uh, it was the app that did the the six second videos a while ago, but what was shut down due to whatever reason. Um, and so TikTok is pretty much just. The same thing where you get a, a home page full of, of uh people's videos, um, and you can just scroll and, and watch them and they're between 15 seconds and a minute long. Um and yeah, the 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 fun part about TikTok is the videos that you see are are catered to you. So TikTok takes what videos you like and kind of finds you content that they, they think you would uh they think you would like. And so that's, that's why it's different from, from other uh, video sharing apps.
0: So tell us about your musical back- background. Scrolling through your account, I can see you compose, you write, you sing songs. Where'd you learn those skills?
1: Um, So I grew up in a very musical family. Uh, my dad was in a band and uh, my mom's a great singer. Um, so I was just surrounded by music um, all throughout my life. Uh, and so I... Uh, I picked up the ukulele when I was like five years old, and then when I was about ten years old, I uh, I got a guitar and started playing around with that. Um, and then a few years later, I got into the production side of it. So now I just sort of I I I write and I I produce uh, my own songs. And then on on top of that, I I love doing theater. Um. So uh, as soon as I I saw the opportunity for uh songwriters for this this uh ratatouille musical i thought that it would be the the perfect time to combine the the love of musical theater and also writing and and music production
0: Millions of people have seen your TikTok videos, (laughs) most notably in your contributions to Ratatouille, the musical. So for folks who don't know, like TikTok, it's these short videos and it's not that this musical existed in a real way outside of the app. Someone had the idea and it's sort of like a creative prompt. People just kept piling on. So tell us more about how this hypothetical musical really picked up steam.
1: Um, yeah. So, um, there was a girl named Emily Jacobson, uh, who posted a video in really early October. Um, and she was singing, uh, it was, it was a a song about, uh, Remy, who is the main character, the, the rat from Ratatouille. Um, and it was a, a really fun, uh, a really fun song. She like pitched it up. So her voice sounded super cartoony. um, and uh, it ended up going pretty viral. Um, people started to use it in the background of their videos. People started to dance to it. Um, and uh, it started to become sort of like a trend to use it in the background of your videos. Um, and then my friend Daniel Merzluft, uh took that song and kind of made a, a musical theater arrangement of it. So he he took the melody and then added a bunch of harmonies and added... Uh, just a bunch of like orchestral drums and timpani and french horn and uh all that jazz and uh it 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 sort of sparked the idea for Ratatouille the musical which um, which is which is hilarious because he he totally meant uh to post that as a joke and everyone thought that this whole thing was a joke but then it just sort of like exploded into sort of the mainstream media.
0: It was a joke until everyone took it seriously. Exactly. There's not always a lot of logic behind what goes viral, but why Ratatouille? What is it about this story that got people creating right now? Um, I think that it was a mixture
1: of two things. I think, I think that Ratatouille is one of those movies that everyone has seen at least once. I think that it sort of falls into that like flushed away category. Um, where it's like Ratatouille, uh, and like Flushed Away and, and Over the Hedge are just movies that like everyone has seen at least once they're, they're animated. They came out in the mid 2000s. So, you know, everyone's got to know the story and the characters and, and everyone can relate to it when they see this content. So, um, I think, uh, it was coincidental, uh, due to Emily's video, um, and also uh quarantine and the 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 pandemic totally helped with that uh coming to fruition um but i uh i totally i totally think it was a mixture of ratatouille being such a well-loved pixar movie um and also just like boredom um <laughs> and people coming together uh to like have an ounce of musical theater uh right now because there's there's no live shows right now
0: it started like you said basically as a joke but it really has gotten serious it is so popular that a broadway production company is streaming a digital version of the play to benefit the actors fund it'll be streamed on the first day of the new year are you part of that production
1: uh yes i am i so i'm gonna have two songs as uh a, 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 a part of that which is is super cool um yeah, it's a it's a it's a Disney event. Um, so it's it's completely legit. It's not like a, a rinky dink TikTok creator live stream. It's like it's like the real deal. Um, and as soon as we got that announcement, I knew I was like, Okay, yeah, this is no longer like a, a niche TikTok theater joke. This is kind of something that, that people are starting to care about. Um, yeah, it's 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 cool.
0: There are songs in the musical, obviously, but what else is going into the production? Um,
1: so it's going to be a, a one-day charity live-streamed event. Um, so all of the money from the tickets uh, is benefiting the Actors Fund. Um, and uh, it's, it's right now it's a lot of arranging. And um, it's a lot of uh, just trying to, to fit all the work within the span of a month. Um, because, uh, the truth is the bulk of the work is already done. Um, we already have music. We already have lyrics. Um, it's just sort of a matter of, um, arranging it. And, uh, we are working with an orchestra, um, and we, we have to find actors and, um, yeah, it's, it's totally the real deal. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really cool.
0: Do you have any dream castings?
1: Oh, I do. Um, I, I mean, having, having Linguini as, as Andrew Barth Feldman, um, who was Evan Hansen on Broadway, uh, would be incredible. Um, and having Emil as, as Josh Gad, um, was definitely, uh, someone that I've thought of. Josh um, Gad was in Frozen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh yeah, it, it, you know what, if, if the stars align, maybe we could get, uh, the, 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 the cast that I'm, I'm, I'm picturing. Um, but, uh, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be totally cool no matter who they cast.
0: You wrote Tango Linguini and that's the song that we heard at the beginning. What inspired you to create that song?
1: Um, so there was a girl, um, who posted a video, and she was talking about uh, what she wanted to see people make in terms of, like, songs for the musical. And one of her ideas was a tango between Colette and Linguini. Um, and the minute I heard that, I was like, okay, that's that's what I'm going to do. Because <laughs> I thought it was just so funny. And, you know, I love... Um, I love the idea of a tango. I love the the Latin rhythms. I love uh, just all the all the really cool instruments and and all the layers. And so I I knew that it was something that I that I had to make.
0: It's fair to say that Ratatouille the musical has made quite the impression on people. Has it attracted the attention of celebrities outside TikTok? Maybe people associated with the original movie. Yeah,
1: um, I, it was actually it was actually really cool because a friend of mine sent me. A uh, a um, a a screenshot of Patton Oswald's Twitter, and he retweeted the video that I made. And P- Patton Oswalt um, is a legend. He played Remy in the original uh, Ratatouille movie, but he's also been in a zillion other movies. And so he's he's definitely uh, someone who I did not expect to to see take interest in Ratatouille the musical. But it was him, and also. Brad Bird, who directed the original Ratatouille movie, um, and uh, and also Hank Green. Han- Hank Green reached out to me, um, and uh, he he uh, he wanted me to to help him make a, a a song for the for the musical. And so there there there've been a few people who have uh, taken an interest in in Ratatouille.
0: Like I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is so cool. Blake Rouse, a musician from Fort Collins, is a songwriter for the upcoming Ratatouille, the TikTok musical. Countless colleges have had to cancel, postpone, or move online a moment students dream about for years, graduation. But in Mesa County, a university found a way for grads to walk across the stage last Friday with their families right there to clap. It involved a lot. COVID-19 tests, coordination, and a private jet. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has the story.
7: It's cold just after 5 p.m. at Grand Junction small airport. And so dark, you can't see the imposing mesas right next to it. Floodlights illuminate a sleek jet, all 58 feet of it, and a group from Colorado Mesa University walking its way.
4: This is pretty surreal, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I guess no more surreal than anything else this year, right?
7: CMU Vice President John Marshall says hours earlier, 60 people, graduates, friends and family, got tested for COVID-19 last minute in the hopes they can attend graduation the next day. But to do that, these tests need to get on this plane, accompanied by him and a few others from the school. Marshall says this fast flight will ensure they get the results in time.
4: It's kind of a joyful, crazy
7: ending to a crazy year, right? He and the rest of the CMU crew buckle in. Here we go. Let's take off. That excited voice belongs to Amy Bronson, another member of the CMU team behind the plan. While a private jet might sound like a drastic solution, this part of the state is isolated nearly 300 miles and one big mountain pass away from the testing facility. Emma Lienerman coordinates CMU's testing program. We had to drive the test tonight. I don't know that they would have got there. Especially since Outer Window, she can see snow rolling in. After only about half an hour, the group lands in Loveland. As they hand off the box of tests, everyone looks excited. Even Matt Dukes, a scientist at Warrior Diagnostics, who met the plane.
4: Thank you. Appreciate it. going to go and get to work. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Have a great night.
7: Pilot and CMU instructor Erling Brabeck is grinning in his Santa hat. You saved Christmas, someone jokes.
5: Oh, no. <laughs> no, we, uh, we all saved Christmas.
7: Including the man who donated the jet. Kevin Davis, who runs a local car dealership.
3: You know, I hope the students appreciate it, and and I, I just, you know, like to see them go out and make a difference in the world.
7: Davis dropped out of high school, but eventually got his business degree from CMU. It means a lot to him that a large portion of these students are the first in their family to graduate college.
3: For sure, I am too. It's a big deal, it's pretty exciting. Jenny Alicia
4: Rodriguez.
7: The next morning, people are spread out in the stadium as they watch graduates receive a diploma and a gloved fist bump from the school's president. Everyone is wearing a mask. After a short ceremony, 26-year-old graduate Linford O'Clue waves up at his mom. We, I don't want to cry right now, but we've been through a lot. Thank you, God. Constance Garvey, Linford's mother, makes her way down to her son and beams about his accomplishment.
8: I'm really, really happy. It's a long journey. And, uh, (laughs) hey, it's been a tough year, but at the end of the year, we're still happy.
7: In the parking lot, grads are lining up to take photos in front of a vintage truck, complete with a large sign congratulating the class. As a man and woman in their early 20s smile for outstretched cell phones, the man drops to one knee and presents a ring. Through tears, she says yes. Minutes later, Celeste Tovar, newly engaged, tries to describe what she feels.
6: I, I, a lot of things. I'm crying and I'm laughing and I just, (laughs) it doesn't feel real.
7: (laughs) Her brand new fiancé, Blair Kratzer, admits he was a little nervous beforehand especially during the ceremony. The whole time, it was in the back
4: of my head, I was like, I'm getting a diploma today, I'm going to (laughs) propose.
7: If the graduation had been called off, like so many this year, Kratzer would have figured something else out.
4: Do a Zoom proposal or something.
7: (laughs) (laughs) But he and his future wife say they feel lucky to be right here with their families, celebrating two monumental milestones in person. In Grand Junction, I'm Sina Sieg, CPR News.
0: It's a Colorado tradition to keep Christmas lights on display until the National Western Stock Show finishes up at the end of January. But what do you do this coming January since the stock show has been postponed until
2: 2022? We are getting the question whether we should leave our lights on for the duration of stock show. And we are encouraging everyone to do so and support a stock show. It's a Colorado tradition that dates back to the 1920s. The dates of Stock Show 21 would have been through January 24th, so we're encouraging everyone to leave their lights on through January 24th, and I believe the city and county building has already made the plans to do that, and I think some other counties and the Castle Rock Star, there's a couple different locations that are already planning to leave their lights on.
0: That's Karen Woods of The Stock Show. So how did that become a tradition in the first place? And were outdoor Christmas lights really first created in Denver? Those are holiday questions we've received through Colorado Wonders. Former state historian Bill Convery helped us answer them in 2019.
2: The story goes that there was a 10-year-old boy, David Sturgeon, and his father, D.D. D. Sturgeon, was a Denver electrician. And as the story goes, the young son got sick and couldn't go downstairs to enjoy the Christmas celebration. So his father rigged up some light bulbs in a tree outside the house, and he painted the light bulbs red and green. And as tradition relates it, that was the first outdoor decorated Christmas light in the country. A Denver Post reporter got a hold of the story and began to boost it. And soon the Sturgeon's neighbors began decorating their trees outdoors, and eventually the whole city took up the tradition.
0: Convery says the city of Denver had an electrician who started putting lights on city buildings and in Civic Center Park back in 1919. The city kept increasing funding and by the early 1940s he got to decorate City Hall. And as the story goes, the stock show started touting holiday lights as a way to attract people downtown for the rodeo.
2: I think the city of Denver is kind of touchy about the lights at the city and county building. In the 1940s, Denver's new Mayor Quig Newton tried to re- redecorate what he considered the garish and tasteless display in front of Civic Center. And, and city voters really slapped him down and told him he needed to go back to the way that they remembered it. And, of course, you remember John Hickenlooper in the early 2000s uh, tried to replace the term Merry Christmas with Happy Holidays. And he found out, again, that Denverites liked their traditions. And so I think it just became a tradition for Denverites to, to hang on to the, their lights into January not just for the stock show, but, you know, I think those lights really speak to our, our need to have light on the darkest days of the winter.
0: Former state historian Bill Convery. You may have a poinsettia or two decorating your home. Our producer Michelle Fulcher buys the plant every year, but their relationship is complicated. She spoke last December with horticulturalist Nikki
8: Guquino of the Denver Botanic Gardens. So let me start with this. We have a beautiful poinsettia sitting right here in the studio. Red leaves, white leaves, I'm going to describe them as perky, right? They're kind of standing up, beautiful plant. If this were in my house, I'd just be hoping that it would last till Christmas. Am I the lone ranger here, or poinsettia is hard to take care of?
3: They can be a challenge to take care of because most people, they love to overwater plants. Poinsettias like to dry out between waterings. And unfortunately, everybody feels the need to really love their plants. Sort of
8: killing them with kindness. Yes, kind they of love
3: thing. them so much that they want to drown them. So they water <laughs> them almost every day, every other day. Poinsettias, depending on where you place them, in the sunnier places, they might need to be watered a bit more frequently. In a darker place, a little bit less so. Usually, you can tell where, how to water them by checking the soil. So if the soil feels dry, That's a good indicator that you should water your plant now.
8: So not even moist, but dry.
3: Dry, yeah. So if you look at your plant, your plant will tell you what it wants. If it starts to wilt, that's not a sign that it's dying. That's a sign that it just needs water. So you just got to look at those hints. And if you follow those hints, you will make it last longer than the first week when you buy it. So I have to be sort of a plant psychologist along with everything else? I wouldn't say psychologist. I usually use detective to figure out those very not-so-subtle hints that they're giving you.
8: Give me another couple of hints of things that people do wrong.
3: Overwatering is usually the biggest criminal thing. The other thing is when they place them in someplace really dark and then expect them to last longer, plants obviously need natural light to survive, and inside is already much darker than outside. Okay. Um, So putting it in the darkest corner in your room with no lights or not even a window, it's ensuring that your plant is not going to live for a long time. So I have
8: kind of the opposite problem. I have big old windows all through my house. And every time I buy one of these plants, somebody says, indirect light. I'm like, first of all, what is that? And second... Like, do I move the plant around during the day to catch the indirect light?
3: No. So (laughs) um, usually it just means to keep it away from the window if it's a south-facing window. Okay. Um, South-facing windows are the brightest area. So usually take it away from the window. It'll still be in a very bright room, indirect light.
8: How did this become a holiday plant anyway?
3: So they're well-known because of their bright red bracts or white bracts, pink bracts. And bracts are leaves. Yes. It's just been a staple from our greenhouse industry. They're very easy to grow and cultivate. And it's also just because it's a a pretty cheap plant for greenhouses to grow.
8: So the poinsettia is native to Mexico. It was cultivated by the Aztecs. Uh, When the missionaries came later, they called it, I love this, el flor de noche buena. That means the... Flower of Christmas Eve. How did it come to the U.S.?
3: The poinsettia is actually named after a U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Poinsett. Basically, during the early to mid-1800s, there's a lot of plant collecting going on at the time. So mm. people loved to have all these rare exotic plants. And then over time, it just became a staple for those lovely red or white bracts that they can grow for the holiday season.
8: What do you think of poinsettias?
3: You're a horticulturist. I ask that question every day, too, actually. I'm not a huge fan of poinsettias. Um, I I wish that we used more anthuriums, which is another amazing aeroid family plant that um, is usually used actually in Europe more for their cut flowers during the holiday season.
8: And what do anthuriums, do they have like a popular name? I didn't? Uh,
3: flamingo flower would cool. probably be the most common name. It's a staple house plant here in the United States as well, um, continually blooms red flowers. Oh, nice. Um, it's just a great plant and much sturdier than a poinsettia. The problem with things like anthuriums is that they're much more expensive. Okay, so there's a myth that goes with poinsettias.
8: Poinsettias. There you go. There you go. Um, that they're poisonous, right?
3: No. So they're related to, they, they are euphorbia, and there are a lot of euphorbias, and some of them are toxic. But um, poinsettia is not toxic. Same thing with, like, the concern of feeding your dog or cat. Right. It's not going to be the end of the world if they accidentally bit a leaf or two off of it.
0: Nick Giacuento, horticulturalist at the Denver Botanic Gardens, speaking last December with Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher.
1: Percy, the puny poinsettia Hanging his bloom in dismay If they had just kept him wetter He'd be a houseplant today Folks like the other plants better Now he's alone on the shelf Even a plant with no uncle or aunt Shouldn't spend Christmas Day by himself
0: Thanks for joining us. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. to
1: take home. One at a time, all his friends were adopted till Percy was left all
2: alone. Percy, the puny poinsettia.